A thing that looks like a police box standing in a junkyard. It can move anywhere. Maybe. Concentrate on sin. Give priority to the detectors and the navigation systems. There is a corridor. And the corridor is time. It surrounds all things. On display, I eventually had to go down to the cellar. That's the display department. With a torch. The lights are probably gone. So had the stairs. Yours is number six. I am not a number. I am a person. Welcome to British Invaders, episode 394. This is the podcast all about British science fiction television, and this time we are continuing our discussion about The Georgian House. This is Brian from Canada. And this is Eamon from England. Hello. So we have been watching the three surviving episodes of a seven-part children's TV serial from 1976. The 25-minute color episodes. We have numbers one, three, and seven out of the original seven. And we'll talk more about what we've been doing to try to get the whole story with so much of it missing. And this is a time slip type adventure with our two teens travelling back from mid-1970s Bristol to 1772. And it's going to get into some of the difficult history of Britain's involvement in the slave trade, basically, in that time period, like the late 1700s. And we're going to talk about a little bit of the history and the politics as we go along, Brian. Yes, uh, the warning there, we will get to be a little bit more political in this one than we do sometimes. And I'll also just note the term time slip, which uh, you've been using, is sort of an informal name for time travel, where the characters doing the traveling have very little control over what time they're traveling to and don't necessarily control when it happens at all. So often when there's some mysterious device or phenomenon that allows this time travel but there is no control over it and that's the case in the georgian house and in fact we left our teenagers when the inexplicable slip had happened and they found themselves back in 1772 bristol in the georgian house and fitting into their roles in the family that owned the house in that time period. Although we should say different roles and with different degrees of success. And Dan, who is the servant boy, has managed to convince Abby that she's not, in fact, the visiting cousin from Cornwall, but is, in fact, a teenager from the mid-1970s. And they have to figure out, basically, how they're going to get back in time, back to the future, if I dare say that, Brian, and they realise that this strange African wooden carved artefact in the drawing room of the Georgian house seems to be the key to returning them to their own time. Yes, that's right. And the carving seems to have some kind of strange magic associated with it. And it seems to be linked to Ungo, this young enslaved man or enslaved teenager who is working as a servant in this house. Yes, quite a lot of this, the plot is, you know, he is central to the plot and what's going on and he becomes I suppose the focus of their efforts yes absolutely and the two teenagers Dan and Abby 
travel between the 1770s and the 1970s a number of times. So when they are back in their own time, they are able to research the history of the Ledbetter family and of the house itself and even of Ungo. And they are aware that Thomas Ledbetter intends to send Ungo back to the plantations in the Caribbean to work there as a slave. And it's interesting you say, Brian, they do time slip backwards and forwards a few times in this show. We don't see all of them because of the missing episodes, but they they do zip backwards and forwards a bit. And their researches also tell them that if they can keep Ungo in the United Kingdom until the sort of landmark legal ruling of mid-1772, the Somerset ruling, uh, which happened in June 1772, then that will give him the chance to win his freedom from slavery. And then he can get to have some sort of agency about his own destiny rather than being sent back to work as a slave on a plantation. Uh, And they realise that they have to go back. They have to go back to 1772, Dan and Abbey, and help. And we know from the scripts from the missing episodes that there's a fair bit of mishap and jeopardy for them back in 1772, particularly for Dan and Ungo. Dan will be threatened with homelessness and even imprisonment, with the same happening to Ungo, who is also sort of thrown out of the house at one point. So um, there's quite a lot of stakes going on for the the couple of teenagers and particularly for Ungo back in 1772. Yes, and we learn that the difference between when he can be enslaved and where he is and later when he can't is just a matter of weeks from where they are and the things that are happening in 1772. It's touch and go stuff. It is, and they actually bring Ungo to the present day for a little while which is a very unpleasant and sort of shocking experience for Ungo and something that he is not willing to maintain. He feels that he has to go back to his own time, but he is also insisting that they should save him from being sent back to the West Indies and these plantations. Lots of interesting stuff. Most of it, or some of it, gleaned from the scripts, which we'll come to in a moment. But I guess we should get to some of the history that this show covers. Yes, absolutely. And we are clearly rooted to Bristol, which is a large city in the southwest of England. Yes. Now, Bristol sits on the mouth of the River Avon, which made it an ideal port and a key part of what was known as the triangular trade. This was sending and selling goods to Africa and then taking slaves and transporting them to the Americas and then returning with sugar and tobacco from the Americas and the West Indies. You know, a terrible trade, which, as we say, is now known or was, I think, known then as the triangular trade. 
And obviously, the businessmen who owned the ships, who owned plantations, who, you know, and I'll use the word advisedly, owned the slaves, did very well out of this. And a lot of the wealth and success of Bristol is built on this trade, um, particularly from the 18th and 19th century and their involvement in this, uh, in this business. And it's only, I guess... Well, let's say there's been a lot of discourse about this in the last decades uh, and 100 years or so, Brian, where um, here in the UK we've been coming to grips with the past and Britain's involvement in the slave trade and where a lot of this money and wealth came from. Yes, absolutely. And this is similar to things we've, we've seen in places across the Western world, for sure. And in particular in Bristol, there are so many of the traders, the slave traders, who are recognized in the names of roads, of schools, of museums, all sorts of things were named after these people. And there were statues built of them that are there. And this is something that the city and the people of Bristol have to deal with, have to have that reckoning with their past and how they share that past and how they recognize things. And there's been much public discourse, much conversation much debate, I guess, about how to acknowledge the city's past, what to do about all these places and schools and so on that are named after slave traders. Now, listeners on this side of the Atlantic will probably know what I'm going to refer to next, because for some people in Bristol, the conversation and the action and the sort of reassessment of this history was been happening too slowly. And you may remember that in June 2020, the statue of the slave trader Edward Colston was toppled and thrown into the harbour of the River Avon by protesters, uh, an event that caused a lot of discussion and uh, news reporting then at the time and since, as certain you know people felt that this process was taking too long, and so they took action more immediately. Yes, and there have been things that sound quite similar that have happened in the United States and also here in Canada. So yeah, this is something that even now, how to look at that history and how to do things that are perhaps less a less in celebration of people, but still recognizing the history is something that is very much still a major topic being dealt with. Now, The Georgian House, the TV serial, shows Bristol dealing with this history in children's TV and how we communicate with children and do things in entertainment from early 1976. And I think it was really ambitious to be doing that. And I'm, I'm glad it was, uh, it was being done. And I think it did achieve some of its goals, but it also has some significant flaws. Yes. And let's talk about a couple of those flaws that I noted particularly because, it, well, we'll talk about the entirety of the surviving episodes in a moment. It's slightly difficult to assess, but it does seem to be that this show deals with two popular tropes of the time and of popular culture. The first one we'll refer to as the magical native. 
I think, Brian, is probably the best way for us to talk about it. Yes. And this is the idea that people from certain countries or ethnic origins or races have sort of magical powers and have mysticism of some sort associated with them. And their articles and way of life is somehow magical and mystical as opposed to being modern or based on technology. And we see that with Ungo and this strange wooden carving, which seems to have the power, or he and the carving seem to have the power to transport Dan and Abby backwards and forwards in time. But interestingly, although, you know, they use this trope, uh, Dan and Abby sort of lean into it slightly in the plot because they create a sort of fiction for Ungo, which is that he is some form of psychic fortune teller. And of course, for the well-off members of families, the ladies in particular, having a fortune teller was quite exciting and uh, diverting for them. And so that seems to help keep him in the country until they can get to this landmark legal ruling, which will hopefully secure his freedom. Yeah, so it does slightly subvert the idea of uh, that the uh, that magical native idea a little bit later in the show, but it is still something that a great deal of this whole story is based on that idea. Now, the other problem that we've also seen in television shows, particularly from this time, from the 1970s, I'm thinking that it's not all that long ago that we discussed the phoenix and the carpet where we saw this as well, is the the white saviour trope, let's put it that way, where Dan and Abby are the ones who have to go back and save Ungo and that he often doesn't seem to have a lot of agency and control over his own destiny himself. It needs these two white teenagers from the 1970s to come back and rescue him. Again, I'm perhaps slightly exaggerating, Brian, because it's not all the way like that, is it? Yes, this one is a little trickier to fit in with this particular show. And I think there are definitely white savior elements in here. But it's also true that Ungo is the one who brought Dan and Abby there. He effectively summoned them and at certain points effectively orders them to do these various things to save him. And then that strange fortune-telling act later on in it where, you know, he has a mask so the people in the house don't know that he's Ungo, but they are able to do this thing to help him. And that is something that he plays a direct part in but it's also something that dan and abby set up so this this one is something that is a little tricky to analyze and i think it's a much less prominent part of this show than the magical native trope is but i think it is something that we have to talk about because there are elements of it in there and of course we are slightly having to Imagine how the whole seven episodes went, because, as we keep saying, the archive, this is incomplete, this show, Brian. Yes, and not only is it incomplete, but what we do have for those missing four episodes is inconsistent. I think for episode two, there was a breakdown, but there was no script. And then for four, five, and six, we had scripts, but 
brought in, I think some of them were rehearsal scripts and and one I think was a draft script. So there are things that are somewhat inconsistent because there are different different formats, but they were also done at different times. So sometimes there are different stages of the development of this show. So in one case, it was before the artifact that we see doing the time slip was in there and it was something else. So it is even more inconsistent than just having to work with scripts. We have to look at a variety of things to fill in the gaps. And this is something that comes up with 1970s television shows, for sure. It's unusual for us to be looking at a serial where part of the story is something where we have to fill in the gaps by reading this other content. Yes, I mean, obviously we talk about missing episodes a lot when we discuss Doctor Who, and we've we've talked on this podcast many a time about different ways of recreating the experience of the of what watching those original serials. This one is tricky because we don't even have audio of the missing uh, four episodes. Um, We just have these scripts, as you say, Brian, different formats, different stages of the production scripts. It's all a bit inconsistent, and some of it we're having to sort of just weave together as we go along, I guess. Yes, and with Doctor Who, not only do we have audio, but we have a lot of effort and quite a bit of budget being put into creating ways to appreciate those episodes ways to consume those episodes so there's been a lot of effort into cleaning up that audio there are audio only versions with narration being added there are things with photos there are for some of them animated there's lots of work that's been done with the material available and for this particular show the amount of work that was done with that existing material was fairly minimal. I think they basically provided what they had. And I'm thinking, you know, of other 70s shows that we've covered with missing episodes, the one that springs to mind is Doomwatch, where it's incomplete. But there, as I think you've identified, Brian, with Doomwatch, it's sort of episodic. This is the first one I can sort of remember for a while where it's a complete story that we've supposed to have been watching but we've only able to see three parts of it yes that's right the one that came to mind for me was ace of wands where we had complete stories and then there were complete stories that were missing it wasn't something where we had partial stories so again it's different what we're looking at here. Okay. It's an interesting challenge for us, but the the fact that they've put out the DVD and the fact that the history and, dare I say it, the politics of it all is so fascinating made it worthy of our attention, I think, Brian. Absolutely. Now, I think that's a good jumping spot to get into some of our own thoughts about this. So, Eamon, what did you like about the Georgian House? Well, let's start with the sort of basics, uh, what we might call the mechanics of the show. Let's talk about those four sets, which they went to great lengths to actually reproduce the rooms from the Georgian House. They look great. I think when they slip back in time, the set dressing and the costumes that go with them, hair and makeup and everything, all look very good. So in terms of what they get out of this limited studio setting, using those four sets, I quite liked all that, Brian. I thought that worked well in what we can see. Yes, I agree. 
it definitely looked good. It was a case of a British production company doing historical costuming and historical drama, which is done very well here, as it often is. I would add that I love the ambition of this show. I love what it's trying to do, that it's trying to show this history where I don't think it was being shown in certainly venues like children's television. And I love what they what they were doing with that. Yeah, that is the most fascinating aspect of this to me. And I'm reflecting on the public discourse and conversation and debate that's been going on in recent years about Bristol's history uh, because of recent events. And I was absolutely astounded and fascinated to see here in 19, early 1976 on a children's television programme, they were having that discussion for kids and recognising the dodgy history of Bristol and the slave trade. And I thought that was an absolute revelation. I thought, you know, yes, well done to HTV for having a go and, you know, discussing these difficult subjects with kids in the mid-1970s. Not only were they discussing it, they were also putting, you know, real human faces on it. While it was really only one character, you had the character of Ungo, who's someone that we get to know and sort of see as a character and see that he's, you know, just uh, just a person and he's perfectly capable and a decent person. And we get to see our present day characters interacting with the Leadbetters. So we get to see how our modern perspective says, of course, these people are people like anyone else and they deserve to be free and to be treated like people. And for the Leadbetters, even saying that is utterly ridiculous to them and brings, you know, responses that are along the lines of, are you feeling okay? And it brings the ideas of what the people who were involved in this horrible trade involved in the slave trade and the uh, sort of upper class people at the time how they viewed all of this and we get to see that difference between their perspective and the modern perspective so i was impressed with how that was done for something from you know, well over 40 years ago at this point. And when I think about some other television shows from the 1970s, some what we might call uh, shows intended for an adult audience, who, you know, shows that were infamous and notorious for the racism involved in those shows. And yet here is children's television doing the right thing, doing the brave thing. Um, and the writing, I think, by Laurie Moore and, um, and by Harry Moore is, is pretty good in that the way that they go for it, Brian. I think they actually introduce some very interesting stuff. Um, so I quite like the writing of this show. Yes, I thought for the most part, it seems quite compelling. And there are some things that didn't work as well as others but there's a lot of solid stuff in here. And again, it's a little hard to evaluate because there's so much that we can't see. So based on the three episodes that we have seen, what about the performances, Brian? What about our actors? Yeah, this is an interesting one. On the whole, I was quite satisfied. I enjoyed the performances. I thought the Ledbetter family in particular was 
good in establishing exactly what this world was like and what these people were like. I think that was very good. I think Spencer Banks was good. At times, I felt he was a little bit too much of harsh teenager effect. You know, I think that was a better fit for Penda's fan. I thought some of that didn't work quite as well in here. But on the whole, uh, he was very good, as he always is. Yes, I mean... (laughs) It's a strange thing about acting when, because, you know, when we see people who can do it, like Spencer Banks, like Jack Watson, you know, and sometimes when we see people who perhaps aren't quite so good, it makes it obvious that acting is quite challenging on television sometimes. Certainly back in 1772, it all works pretty well. I must admit, when Adrienne Byrne first turns up in the first episode as Abby, she was a little bit drama school, straight out of teen drama school for me then. She seems a bit awkward. She keeps glancing at the camera, I noticed, which the others don't do. Strangely, when she went back to 1772, she seemed much more comfortable, which sort of fits in, I suppose, with the show as the sort of upper middle class cousin from Cornwall I thought Brian yeah I see what you mean it didn't bother me so much but I do see what you mean there I liked what they did with her accents and how she and how she did that that she was presumably uh, speaking with her own accent or the character's own accent in the 1970s and then has to put on a different accent for the for the past and the way they did the switching back and forth with those, depending who she's talking to, I thought that was nicely done. Yes, and of course, it is interesting that this show does, through the device of the time slip, does a sort of class reversal and also sort of, you know, the in a way, a sort of gender reverse in terms of the power dynamic because she becomes the upper class character and Dan becomes the sort of below stirs servant who's shouted at and abused by the family so again we can't see all of it obviously but that i thought they were going to do some interesting stuff with that which maybe would have come out in the other episodes that are missing yes and i do think that was nicely done as well where he is really thrown by it and for her it's more of something the character gets to perform as being this other person so that That I thought was nicely done too. We should mention again perhaps that episode one and seven survive from the original tapes that we believe were copied in the 1980s officially. So they look quite sharp on our TVs. There's one or two minor little glitches, I think, in the transfer, but nothing significant. Episode three, of course, was returned from an off-air recording on fairly early home video recording. So that looks quite different quite you know lower quality compared to it brian yes it looks like a home video recording for sure and this is a network release so it is i think those are not terribly high budget releases and it's fantastic to have all of them we don't get too much in the way of extras on them and i think in this case it would have been nice to have something a little better for covering those missing episodes. And I'm going into more of the negative side of things here now. 
if they had been able to provide a few minutes of narration for each of those episodes, just as someone telling us what happened with maybe a series of photos from the existing episodes to indicate which character and location they're talking about, that would have been much better than leaving us with scripts and leaving us with a breakdown for one and then scripts for others and quite inconsistent things. It would have been nice if they could have done a little bit more of the work in filling the gaps rather than leaving that to us by just giving us the scripts and the breakdown. It could have been a quite different release if they had done something else for those. A partial photo reconstruction narrated by Spencer Banks himself, maybe. Maybe. And it couldn't even really have been a photo narration because I don't think we have photos from those episodes. But they could have done a bit of linking narration with some kind of visual there. Okay. I mean, it is the biggest mark in the negative column against this show is the fact that we can only watch three of the episodes and one of those in rather dodgy quality uh so it's difficult to get a sense of the complete story and the complete performances and some of the stuff about the time slipping but also some of the stuff about you know challenging bristol's history and approaching the subject of slavery for children's tv so yeah it is a real problem to watch an incomplete show brian yes the the scripts do help a lot but they don't get you all the way there, for sure. Yeah. I am going to just again repeat, though, my sort of commendation of HTV for doing it, for trying it, and for, um, you know, going for this stuff in the mid-70s on British TV when uh, other networks were not being um, quite so progressive at all, Brian. Yes, and from what we can see, I think what they accomplished for that time was pretty impressive. They, you know, really did cover some of that history in a way that you weren't really seeing in other things, certainly in this kind of venue, as far as I could tell. So, is anything else in the negative column or anything else you need to mention about this show and this DVD release, Brian? Well, we do have to go back to those couple of troubling tropes that we mentioned earlier. And I think we detailed what they did and some of the, the problems there. But I think we're in a situation where I personally don't feel that we should take the extreme of saying that it did these things that are clearly problematic and therefore it goes out. We should, you know, we shouldn't watch it that it's no longer, you know, does not have any value because of that, nor should we take the other extreme of saying, well, it was the 1970s, they did those things, so it doesn't matter at all. I personally think we need to go somewhere in the middle and say, yes, those those things are there, and they were wrong, and it definitely impacts things, but yes, it was a time where that was not as well understood. And in this case, uh, they really did accomplish some positive things in terms of addressing the history of the slave trade and addressing racism as well. And from what we can see, I would say myself, Brian, that this manages, this is a lot better in the way it handles those tropes than, say, the phoenix and the carpet, where I thought it was a lot worse um, in terms of the racism 
Oh, absolutely. That was definitely much worse. And that didn't come with a positive thing in that arena that they were trying to accomplish. It was just there. Yeah. And we talked plenty about that when we discussed the Phoenix and the Carpet. Yes, we did indeed. And that's about a year ago, I guess, when we were talking about that. Uh, That's about right, yes. So, are we ready to get to our recommendations? I'm ready when you are, Brian, yes. Would you like to go first, Damon? Okay, so it's an interesting one. Obviously, the big problem is the missing four episodes. So I'm going to say I'm not going to recommend this show as a sort of story, plot, watching experience. I'm going to recommend this show either if you remember it from the mid-70s or if you're interested in the history the politics, the way children's television was dealing with this problem. If you find that aspect interesting, then I would get this DVD set, which is fairly easy to get hold of in Region 2. But I can't recommend it for a viewing experience just because it's so incomplete, Brian. So it's a tricky one to recommend, but that's what I'm going to say. What about yourself? Yeah, so this is... uh fascinating bit of television history and i agree that looking at it for that is definitely an interesting thing to do and there's some appeal there but with so much of the story missing four out of seven episodes missing and with the inconsistent approach to how the gaps are filled i can't recommend this okay but well done to htv for trying and well done to Network TV for putting out What Survives. Yes, absolutely. And I think this is definitely an interesting historical note, and it's been fascinating to take a look and to talk about it. Indeed, yes. So, in summary, the Georgian House introduces us to two teenagers, Dan and Abby, who are both interested in history and doing summer jobs at this restored Georgian house in Bristol, where they are looking at the history, and through this strange, mystical African article, they are pulled back in time and are able to interact with a group of people in 1772, so just over 200 years in the past, and are interacting with a group of people who were profiting from and participating in the slave trade. And we also meet this character from that time, Ungo, who is an enslaved person who is under threat, and much of the story revolves on how he can be saved from the fate of being in this enslaved role. It's a fascinating show. Uh, It's a pity it doesn't completely survive. Do let us know if you've seen it, if you've purchased the DVD, or let us know what you think about the history uh, and the stuff that this show tackles. Absolutely. I would love to have a spirited discussion about this and related things on our Facebook group or on Twitter. And of course, please come back and join us next time. We're coming up to date with a more modern show. And it's our very first look at an adaptation of H.G. Wells's The War of the Worlds. This one from the BBC in 2019 and quite an interesting take 
on the story that they've done. We'll talk about it more next time. Yes, that will be an interesting one to talk about for sure. Until then, you can find us at BritishInvaders.com or if you search for British Invaders on Facebook, you can find our Facebook group and join in on some of the conversations there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. We are at BritInvadersPod. So feel free to interact with us there too. Yes, please give us a follow on Twitter. And also come by the Voice of Geeks Network at vognetwork.com. British Invaders is one of the podcasts that they have there, but you'll also find shows about anime and gaming, live streaming, and so on. So there's lots of interesting stuff happening always at vognetwork.com. Oh, yes, absolutely. So thank you for listening. And this is Brian from Canada signing off. Yes, thank you very much for being with us. It's Eamon in England also signing off and time slipping back again. <laughs>